This is a re-recording of the sermon delivered on July 13th, 2023, on the passage Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 to 25, titled, Jesus, the Priest Who is Able. If I were to ask you, do you need a priest to be saved? I believe that many within the general evangelical Protestant circle would either be confused as to why I would ask such a question while a good amount of others would simply respond with a no. There would be some who incorrectly say, no, we don't need a priest to be saved. Rather, all you need to do is say a little prayer or do an altar call. Or some might even respond, no, all you need to do is go to church or all you need to do is be baptized and take communion to be saved. And there would be no doubt others who say, no, you don't need a priest to be saved. What you actually really need is faith. Just have faith. When it comes to the two greatest issues and two greatest questions in life, what must I do to be saved? And what do I do and how do I deal with my sin? Rarely would we hear the response, You need a priest to be saved. You need a priest to intercede and mediate for you and your sins. Now what makes Christianity radically different from every other religion and every other solution to life in this world hinges upon the office of the priesthood. While all the other philosophies and religions in this world rely upon performance, the work and the power of man, dependent upon what you can do and what you can offer, what sets Christianity apart from all others is that we have a perfect priest. And unlike the Levitical priesthood of old, and unlike the priests that we find so prevalent within the Roman Catholic system, rather than having sinful and imperfect temporary and mortal men interceding on our behalf, what makes Christianity so distinct is that it's not dependent upon what we can do. It's not dependent upon the spiritual powers that we think we can muster up for ourselves. But it's simply this, that we have a great high priest Jesus who lives forever with the power to save. And this is what we'll be unpacking as we study this passage. More specifically, we'll be answering the question, why do we need a priest? Why do you need a priest, and why do I need a priest, and why is it so necessary that Jesus, specifically Jesus, why he needs to be your priest? And there are two reasons for why we find here, right here in our text, two reasons for why it's necessary that Jesus be our priest. And these two points will serve as our outline for today. The reasons for why you need Christ Jesus as your priest is first, because he's the priest who guarantees, and second, because he's the priest who is able. 
First, because he's the priest who guarantees verses 20 to 23. And second, because he's the priest who is able, verses 24 to 25. Now look down with me to verse 20 and let's read this together as we begin to unpack God's word. We read here verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath. Still on the theme of priesthood, the writer begins verse 20 with what we would call a litotes, a double negative. Jesus was not made priest without an oath. Now this isn't the first time we've come across something like this in the book of Hebrews. Back in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10, if you can recall with me, we find the writer utilize this same grammatical tool by writing, For God is not unjust. Which is to simply say that God is just. And so the natural question that's often prompted when someone comes across a litotes is this, Why do you have to even say it like that? Why make something a seemingly simple point or message that God is just seem more convoluted or more complex than it should be? Well, the reason why the writer utilizes this grammatical tool is not to cause confusion, but rather to cause curiosity. It's to grab your attention and slow you down as a reader and to force you to more intentionally consider what's being communicated. For example, it's one thing for me to say, I love spending time with my wife, which you, you, which you can hear that and it can easily go in one ear and out the other. But if I were to tell you, I don't love spending time without my wife, it almost forces you to take pause and reconsider what I just said. It makes you intentionally think about what just came out of my mouth. It's the same meaning, but different effect. And this is exactly what the writer is doing here by saying that Jesus was not made priest without an oath. In other words, what the writer is doing here to his readers is that he's saying, I want you to pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. I want you to digest this. I want you to think carefully with, with what I'm about to tell you. And I'm about to tell you this that Jesus was made priest by an oath. And the general point that the writer is trying to make here in verses 20 to 21 is actually quite plain and simple, and it's this. While the priests of the Old Testament became priests without an oath, Jesus, on the other hand, who, verse 19, who is himself the better hope, is a priest who came by and with an oath. Now, if you've been tracking with the writer's argument, you'd remember that he's already made quite a big deal regarding God's oath back in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 to 18, and that God secures his promise that he makes to Abraham with an oath. Meaning, now get this, an oath exists to secure a promise. And it's on the basis of these two unchanging things, the promise of God, and on top of that, the oath of God, 
that we find deeply embedded into Christ's priesthood. Now track with me here. We know that once God makes a promise, He doesn't need to add anything to it to make it more sure or more true than it already is. Once God makes a promise, we can be sure that His promises are sure. His promises are a reflection of who He is. He's perfect, therefore His promises are also perfect. He's unchanging, therefore His promises are also unchanging. Yet what we find here in this passage is that because of our weakness, because of our own mortality and sinfulness, God condescends and takes His unchanging promise that He will save and redeem sinners. He takes this promise and He adds on top of it an oath. And by adding an oath, He makes His promise that's already sure, infinitely sure, doubly sure. Meaning God didn't give an oath because He needed it, but He gave an oath in order to give us every surety that He will do what He had promised. That So that when we come to verse 20, that Jesus, the divine priest of God, came with an oath, it's for us to unquestionably recognize that Christ's priesthood has been validated in such a way that far surpasses the law. It supersedes all bloodline, all ancestry, and all priesthood. This to reiterate, that Jesus' priesthood is categorically different and infinitely more sure and effective than any other thing that anyone has ever, ever seen or heard. Now what's so critical and what the writer's really trying to press for us to understand and grasp here in this chapter is that the whole Levitical priesthood was intentionally and inherently flawed. It was based on a law which was going to be, as we've learned in our previous studies, set aside. It was based on a law which was to be annulled. It was instituted with and carried out by human hands, men who were flawed and thoroughly sinful and temporary at best. While in contrast, the priesthood of Christ came with not just a generic oath, but a divine oath. A divine oath. This to say that the priesthood of Christ is one that is eternal and unchanging. It's an eternal priesthood that has with it an eternal oath. And so the writer goes on to write in verse 21, quoting Psalm 110 once again, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. And so on the basis of God's oath, and on the basis of verse 21, what he has sworn and on that which he will not relent, Christ's priesthood is promised to never change, nor will it ever be set aside as it was with the priesthood of old. Meaning, Christ's priesthood is eternally and absolutely and categorically fixed in the history and plan of redemption. We find here that while the Aaronic priesthood was instituted by divine law, Christ's priesthood was instituted by divine oath. And while the law can be annulled and set aside, 
The divine oath of God is one that lasts into eternity forever. Thus, verse 22, we read, By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. The New King James Version, which I'm reading from, translates this word as a surety. But I believe that the ESV and the NIV best captures the correct meaning of this word by translating the word enguas as guarantor. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Now this word enguas is only used once in the whole of scripture and it's used right here. And it's a word that's often associated with a legal setting. And the picture that's being painted here is that the bond or the collateral that's to be put up, the material guarantee, if you will, that, that the debt will be paid and the promise to be fulfilled, that God will indeed keep his word, is embodied in the person of Christ himself. Now, this is very important for us to understand here. One commentator heavily writes this, The mediator steps into the gap between two parties. But the guarantor stakes his person and his own life on his word. So Jesus, through his death, his exaltation and installation as heavenly priest, he provides security that the new and better covenant will never be annulled. Jesus has become the guarantor who offers himself as the pledge that this obligation, that this legal obligation will without a doubt be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus doesn't just guarantee a better covenant, but we find here that he himself is the better covenant. He's not just the means to an end, but much more than that, he's both the means and the end. He's the solution to salvation, and, and He in and of Himself is salvation. And so if you were a Jew reading this as the audience here was, you would have read this and you would have utterly rejoiced, knowing that the Old Covenant, which was so frequently broken and ridden with failure, has been done away with, and that the new and better has come. Your mouth, would have been full of praise. You would have rejoiced in looking to Him who not only doubly secures your salvation with an oath, but guarantees your salvation for eternity, forever. And friends, how much more should we rejoice today in knowing that we too are under the same new and better covenant? that we too have a great high priest who came with an oath, who came to us as the guarantor of our salvation to save and redeem us. Now you may be asking, what exactly makes this covenant better? And the simple answer to that is its effectiveness. While Moses, as the mediator between God and man, could never have guaranteed the, the covenant of old, in Christ we have in him both the mediator and the guarantor of salvation. It's through his atoning work that then guarantees us the fullness 
the entirety of God's covenant with us. Verse 23, we read, Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. If you can recall, the writer first introduces Melchizedek back in chapter 5, and it's in that passage where the writer refers to his readers as dull and hard of hearing. And as the writer reintroduces Melchizedek here in chapter 7 for a second time, in making this full circle back to Melchizedek, the writer does this to grab his readers' attention to point something specific out to them. Now, it's like somebody, when uh, somebody comes to you and he says or she says, you're never going to understand. I mean, why should I tell you what I want to tell you if you're never really going to get it, if you're not going to understand me? Now, when somebody comes up to you and talks to you and says this to you, you don't take that and say, oh yeah, I'll never understand. Yeah, I, I probably will never get it. You're right. But rather, what does this do? What does this make you think? It makes you want to know even more about what you won't understand, right? You think, well, why don't you just first tell me what you think I won't understand so that I can show you that I can and do understand. And this is exactly what the writer's doing here to his readers. He's in a way saying, you guys won't understand all this stuff about Melchizedek and Jesus. You're not going to understand because you're too dull and hard of hearing. But let me just give it a try to see if you can really understand this or not. And so in grabbing his readers' attention, what the writer wants his readers to know here in this portion of text is that there's a way to go about understanding everything that's been said, to even respond with a posture of amazement and wonder and thanksgiving, and to still find yourself going back to find another priest apart from Christ. And he's warning his readers, he's warning them here, don't do that. Don't go back to finding another priest apart from Christ. And this is the very same message that he has for you, my brothers and sisters. That there is a way to be completely enraptured by truth and yet still not trust in the one who is himself truth. That it's possible to be amazed by the work of Christ and yet still not trust in the work of Christ. That it's possible to look to Him as the one who saves yet fail to trust in Him as your Savior. To understand that Jesus guarantees salvation yet fail to submit to Him as the one who is the very embodiment of salvation. And in part, the writer is telling his readers, I need you. I need you, friends, to understand this. Your lives depend on this. Pay close attention to this. I'm laboring and writing this very letter so that you get this very thing. And what is it that he wants them to understand? Verse 23 that the multiplicity of the Old Testament priest proves itself to be imperfect and incomplete. 
Just as we've seen the writer jump back and forth between the old to the new, the Levitical, old Levitical priesthood to the new priesthood in Christ, the temporary nature of the old to the far greater and eternal of the new, the writer's message is quite plain and simple here, that the old covenant is flawed and that the new has come. It's as if he's pleading with his readers, why would you even think about going back, friends? Why would you even want to go back? Look to Christ. Continue to look to Him. Look to Him who is the new and better covenant. We find here that the very reason for why the old covenant was imperfect, the one huge flaw that it had, was that the priests of old died. And this was the case until verse 24 where we read, But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. While the priesthood of old fell piece by piece, person by person, priest by priest, not one remained out from the grave until Christ, the Son of God. And the fundamental difference that sets him apart from every other priest is that he continues forever, and that he has a permanent priesthood. While the old priesthood was beset with the weaknesses of sin and death, the new, according to the power of Christ's indestructible life, remains forever, thus bursting the bands of death and the grave. The resurrection of Christ, the result of Him overcoming death and hell, deemed His priesthood to be permanent and everlasting. This to say that Jesus' priestly ministry has staying power. It's infinitely lasting. This to say that there will be no setting aside like the old. There will be no coming of another day, a, another priest, or another covenant. It's in this resurrection and the eternal life of Christ that we find the perfect and effective priesthood that is able to save completely and to save forever once and for all, all throughout eternity. Which is where we now transition to our second point, and really the main focus of today's sermon, verse 25, we read, Therefore, from which, whereby, because of this, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, whenever we see a verse begin with the word, therefore, the question that needs to almost immediately be asked is, what is the therefore, therefore? What the writer is doing here is that he's introducing a profound consequential statement on what it means for the Christian believer that Jesus Christ abides forever and possesses a permanent priesthood. It's through this consequential statement where the writer then highlights the benefits of Christ's enduring and unchanging priesthood. In other words, the writer is saying this, 
because Jesus endures and continues on forever and because he has an unchangeable and everlasting priesthood. Verse 25, we read, he is able. And it's within these three words where we find the most profound and monumental truth. It's here within these three words, he is able where we find the foundation, the, the grounds, the very reason for what sets Jesus completely apart from every other being. While Aaron was unable, while the whole Levitical system and priesthood were unable, while the whole line of high priests were unable, the Lord declares here through his word that he is able. And he's able to do what? He's able to do what the law could never have done nor accomplish. He's able to do which a whole system of Levitical priests were unable to fulfill and ever do. But it is to this Jesus Christ alone who is able to do with full power and full ability and entire capacity to do that which God had sent him into the world to do to accomplish the goal of the priesthood, to accomplish the goal of the sacrifices, to save and redeem and reconcile sinners to himself. And beloved, here is what you must understand with absolute surety this evening, especially for those of you listening to this who are unbelieving and who have yet to trust in Christ. And it's this, if you merely think yourself to be bad, you do not know even half of it. You are far worse and in far greater trouble than what you think yourself to be. Perhaps there are some of you in here who think, well, how can God ever save someone like me? I'm not worth saving. I'm too sinful. I'm too rotten and wretched to be saved. I've done things that I'm so ashamed of. I've ruined lives. I've lied. I've cheated. I've committed adultery. I've done things that I shouldn't have done. I've seen things with my eyes that I shouldn't have seen. I've done things that go so far beyond what I can describe that if people only knew what was going inside of me, they would treat me like a leper. I'm unrepairable. I'm unlovable. I'm unsavable. There's no doubt in my mind that I'm outside the scope of God's salvation. And you might be even thinking to yourself, why would God even begin to want to save someone like me? But unbelieving friend, allow me to share with you this good news. That your salvation is not limited on how bad you are, but rather your salvation is only limited by how powerful Christ is. And we find here his limit. What's his limit? Because he continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood. We find here that he has no limit. His limit is unlimited. It's forever and it's forever unchanging. Therefore, because he is forever, because he is unchanging, he is Able, 
dear friends. He's able to save you. He's thoroughly capable and thoroughly equipped to save you from all of your sins. He's able to cleanse you from the deepest and darkest of sins. He's able to cleanse you from all things. He's able to free you from the most binding and consuming of sins. He's able to justify you and forgive you of it all. Now, why is that? Because your ability to be saved is not contingent upon the rottenness of your heart, nor the willingness of your own heart. But rather, dear friends, it's contingent upon the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lives and reigns forever. It's not your confession that removes sin. But what removes sin is not something you can do, but what He has done once and for all upon that cross. Unbelieving friends, you must recognize that you are unable, but He is able. He is able to save you to what degree, you might ask? For how long? For a little bit? For a little while? No, friends. Verse 25, we read, He is able to save to the uttermost. Now, the word that's used here in the Greek for the word uttermost is the word pantales, which is a compound word, a qualitative word that's made up of two smaller words, pas and telos. And if we were to translate this word more literally, we can understand this verse to say that Jesus is able to save completely in all things and thoroughly in every way. This is a word that communicates both duration and completeness. While the old law and the priesthood were unable to save, while they were temporary and ultimately ending in failure, in stark contrast, the writer tells us here that when Christ saves, he saves Pantales. He saves to the uttermost forever. And he's able to save to the uttermost forever those who come to God through him, those who have faith, those who are in Christ. He's able to take those who trust in him and save them utterly and completely to the end. Because why? Verse 25. Because he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, because of the finished work of Christ in offering himself up as the perfect atonement for sin, we're secured in knowing that we're, we're, we're saved completely. But brothers and sisters, we must also recognize by reading here that because Christ's priestly ministry and forever living to make intercession for us, it's because of his intercession that we're able to be saved forever. The work of Christ in redeeming sinners as both the priest of God and the Lamb of God covers all the grounds in accomplishing and securing our salvation, both in its completeness and duration, the past, the present, and the future, now and forevermore. 
And friends, when we hear this, when we see this, and when we learn this, when this goes into our ears, when we see it with our eyes and it takes root within our hearts, friends, this needs to be considered as the greatest news, does it not? The Scottish theologian John Murray, he helpfully writes this, Christ is able to save to the uttermost because he has an unchangeable priesthood and ever lives to make intercession. The intercession is mentioned more specifically as that which ensures salvation to the uttermost. The idea of saving to the uttermost is very inclusive and implies salvation to the full extent, salvation complete and perfect. The inference is inescapable that the intercession of Christ brings within its scope all that is necessary to salvation in the fullest extent of its consummated perfection. This to say that the intercession covers the whole range of what is requisite to and of what is realized in salvation. The intercession of Christ is interposed to meet every need of the believer. No grace bestowed, no blessing enjoyed, no benefit received can be removed from the scope of intercession. And the intercession is the guarantee that every demand will be met by its efficacy. And he writes this, The security of salvation is bound up with his intercession. And outside of his intercession, we must say, therefore, that there is no salvation. Meaning, if Jesus stops interceding for you, if he were to stop praying for us, we're dead. We're all doomed. But it's in the very fact that he does live and that he does intercede for us that we're saved, that we're blessed and that we're alive, that we find in him our every need met and fully satisfied. So how do you know you're going to be saved completely? Perhaps after hearing everything that's been said in this lesson, there might be some of you listening to this, struggling with assurance or questioning the validity or security of your salvation, asking this very question right now. How do I know that I'm going to be saved forever? How can you know that you're going to make it to the very end? Well, the answer to these questions, as demonstrated by the writer, has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your obedience, nor has it anything to do with your personal holiness, though all important these things are in Christian life. But here is what you must absolutely understand tonight with absolute clarity and surety, that you will be saved completely And you will be saved forever, not because of what's inside of you, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but simply because of the one who is the royal high priest, who is at this very moment praying and interceding for you. How do you know that you're going to be saved completely? Because Jesus Christ died for you and because he will pray you safely through until the very end. The great Puritan John Bunyan puts it in this way. He writes, Christ is the Lord of salvation throughout, from the beginning to the end, from the first to the last. 
And he writes, His hands have laid the foundation of it in his own blood, and his hands shall finish it by his intercession. Now, drawing to a close here, I want to end our time together by asking and going back to where we first began, and I want to ask the same question. Do you need a priest? To which I hope you would all respond with a resounding and desperate yes. But perhaps the better question that needs to be asked is, not do you need a priest, but rather, do you have a priest? To which it is also my hope and prayer that you would all respond with a yes. But for those of you listening, if you respond with a no, if you are at this very moment without a priest, without a mediator, allow me to plead with you for a final moment here and exhort you to go to him and throw yourself upon the one who is the great high priest. To go to him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who not only guarantees salvation, but is himself the guarantor of that very salvation. To go to him who is not only able to save you in that completely and forever, but is more than willing to do so, more than you can ever imagine or know. I want to end our time tonight by reading you a hymn that was written as a response to this very passage that we studied, Hebrews chapter 7, and it reads like this, Save to the uttermost, I am the Lord's, Jesus my Savior salvation affords, gives me his Spirit a witness within, whispering a pardon and saving from sin. Save to the uttermost, this I can say, once all was darkness, but now it is day. Beautiful visions of glory I see, Jesus in brightness revealed unto me. Save to the uttermost, cheerfully sing, loud hallelujahs to Jesus my King. Ransomed in pardon, redeemed by His blood, cleansed from unrighteousness, glory to God. Beloved, praise be to God. Praise be to the Father, for He is able to save through His Son by the Spirit to the uttermost.